Scott Cooper is a managing partner at the Silicon Valley-based venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. He also teaches courses on venture capital and corporate governance at Stanford Law School and the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He's got his decades of experience working in the startup world, and he's here today to discuss his new book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I frequently write about, for AI, the importance of innovation, entrepreneurship to the U.S. economy, and obviously venture capital is a big part of that. As you note in the book, over 40% of all U.S. company IPOs since 1974 were venture-backed, and certainly over the past three decades, venture capital has become a dominant force in the financing of the most innovative American companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, many others. And that relationship between VC and entrepreneurs, particularly in Silicon Valley, a huge ingredient in the secret sauce of the American economy. But it was not always so. So let's start with a bit uh, a bit of history. Uh, back in the 1950s and 1960s, we certainly had high growth technology companies, but the world of venture capital and how those companies got financed was uh, was much different. Yeah. So I agree. First of all, I definitely agree with your premise, which is uh, there's no question that venture capital is one of these weird industries where if you look at it from a dollar's perspective, it's tiny, right? If you compare it to hedge funds or public market equities, you know, the amount of money we invest, if we invest $100 billion, which we did last year, that's a massively huge year. And that's, you know, kind of almost nothing compared to these other funding sources. But to your point, uh, it really does punch above its weight in terms of contribution to the economy and new job creation, and economic growth. And I, I think what's changed, I think you're right, what's changed historically is I think the reason why venture has and, and entrepreneurship has become such a big driver uh, of economic growth, I think, is in part because number one, the financing requirements have changed. It's a it's a lot cheaper now because for a lot of reasons we can talk about to start businesses, and so that's really spawned a lot more venture capital dollars, and quite frankly, a lot more great entrepreneurship. And I think the other thing that's happened is we've been investing on this theme called software is eating the world for a long time. And I think what you really look at, if you look at the kind of broad arc of venture and of technology, is we've really moved from a fairly hardware-centric both investment and company building philosophy. And that's a lot of obviously where the origins of this industry came out of in the you know kind of military-industrial complex and the semiconductor industry and have moved much more towards software, which is both, quite frankly, less expensive and more malleable for solving lots of problems. And I think the com- combination of those two has just dramatically changed the impact that technology can have, and therefore, therefore, I think the role that venture can play in this business. So, um, so back you, you mentioned, you know, really in the nineteen eighties, that's when we really started starting to see VC became a, become a huge driver in a way that it wasn't wasn't before. Again, you said, you know, that's really the start of. Um, well, I think to a lot of people, I think of that as start of a tech boom event. Even though we had some very successful technology companies before then, but it was was there a particular reason why we why that's really started to kick into gear thirty years ago? Yeah, I think the way to think about it is, um, you know, if you've read, um, I'm, well, I'm sure you've read it, but maybe some of your listeners have read kind of Carla Perez, right? These ideas of kind of the technology life cycles that uh, that kind of you know these arcs of kind of life cycle we've gone through. It's often these platform shifts that really drive the business. And so I think what you saw, you know, kind of in late 70s and early 80s, of course, and culminating, of course, into the 90s is, you know, really the PC boom and this, you know, kind of vision that Bill Gates originally had of kind of, you know, a desktop uh, on on everybody's desk. You know, that then spawned a whole set of companies, of course, that leveraged that fundamental platform. It's obviously what gave rise to companies like Intel and then, you know, the whole set of, you know, software applications that followed from that. And then you see kind of, you know, late 90s, kind of early stages of the internet boom and, you know, 
we know that that was kind of a boom and a bust cycle initially, but then that spawns things like, you know, Facebook in 2004, you know, Google, and then ultimately leading us, of course, to the iPhone uh, introduction in 2007, which has really given us, quite frankly, uh, you know, a huge boost on what we've seen in the last 10 years of kind of platform development and uh, new consumer services that come out of leveraging those platforms. All right. You know, I mentioned the boom and the bust, and I started really paying attention um, sort of the technology world in the 90s as a journalist. Uh, I was covering a lot of startup uh, companies uh, for a newspaper called Investors Business Daily. Sure. And then you sort of had this you sort of had this bust. And I'm sure maybe it looked like in, in, you know, by the end of 2000, 2001, that this sort of, you know, relationship, you have VC and these technology companies like that, that was dead in the water for a long time. But sort of at, at the bottom is really when you saw sort of the, the percolating, the beginning of this, of this new sort of tech wave that we're enjoying today. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, uh, I was out here in the Valley at that time period. And yes, it was an incredibly depressing time. And, you know, basically, there was this fundamental idea that, hey, look, there was this, all this great pent up excitement about what this thing called the Internet could become. And then all of a sudden, of course, you know, we see NASDAQ peaking at 5000 in, in April of 2000 and, you know, precipitously falling 80 percent to its uh, low point, you know, 18 months later. But it's exactly what you said is interesting, which is it's often in those times where you see kind of the entrepreneurs who, number one, still have an incredible vision for what they want to do. And ironically, one of the nice things about being in an environment like that is you don't have a lot of other competition because there aren't that many companies, there aren't that many venture capital firms, quite frankly, who want to fund things in that type of environment. And so this is why I do think it's true, as you say, that you often find these kind of uh, periods where, you know, everybody's kind of depressed and, you know, looking at their own, you know, kind of navels. But at the end of the day, it's a tremendous opportunity to invest in. And that's a lot of what obviously spawned, you know, you got major companies, Twitter started in that time period, Facebook did, LinkedIn started. Uh, you know, Google was obviously, you know, really starting to see its uh, meteoric rise at that point in time. And, you know, I think those things happen in part because of, you know, kind of the, the market didn't have, you know, massive amounts of competition. How how long does it take before people sort of shake off a downturn like that and start getting enthusiastic versus thinking next time something goes wrong, oh, we're back to where we were, it's collapsing again. When do people really start to think, okay, they begin to pay attention to these technologies and begin to see the opportunity and not just worry about yeah. you know poten the potential downside that, oh, it's all just a bubble and it's all going to burst tomorrow? Yeah, look, 99-2000 for Silicon Valley was a real, real depressing time. And so it took a while. I mean, quite frankly, for most of, you know, kind of, you know, you've got to hit your peak right in early 2000. And then pretty much for most of the next four years, very little happened. Uh, there was very little innovation and startup formation. And you see this in the numbers, right, which is, you know, the way our business works, of course, is we need to raise money from limited partners. And so you have this kind of compound effect, which is the VCs get depressed, the entrepreneurs get depressed, the limited partners, therefore, take their cues from the VCs and don't want to put money in it. And so it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. Things started to pick up here kind of 05, 06, 07. And then, of course, as you know, right, we run you know, smack into the global financial crisis in 08. That, though, it turned out actually was relatively a short-lived crisis for Silicon Valley, notwithstanding, mm -hmm. obviously, how foundationally, uh, you know, kind of critical that was for the broader U.S. economy, uh, because it was not, you know, it was not kind of the tech-specific bubble that we had in 99-2000. And so even though there was a hiccup probably in the first part of 09, by the time you got to kind of 2010, uh, most people were pretty well, you know, ready to kind of be back in the game. Right. Now, the heart of the book is really sort of how this whole process works. And if any, any listeners think this might be in your future, if you have an idea uh, and you think at some point you, you, you might need venture capital funding and this is, book is a must have. But I think 
to the average person, to the extent they understand this, they think it's about rich guys giving money to a fund, and then that fund cuts a check to some entrepreneur and then just you know crosses their fingers and hopes it all works out for the next five to 10 years. Right. But that is not quite the whole process. No, it's uh, it's not the uh, there is some of the some of the rich guys part is true. I have to say, uh, in terms of where where uh, venture capital funds sometimes get their money from, but as you know, we also get our money from you know university endowments, from foundations. So there's lots of kind of not for profit institutions who basically look to venture as part of a broader portfolio and say, look, if you can generate me 25, 30 percent, you know, annualized returns, uh, I can do kind of the philanthropic mission of my organization. Or if I'm Stanford University or Yale University, I can afford to you know, subsidize the important academic activities that are happening in our institution. So that part, you know, is also true. But you're absolutely right, which is the way this business works is uh, we are clearly a source of capital. But as you know, well, Jim, uh, you know, capital is no longer a scarce resource. There is plenty of capital everywhere. There will always be somebody around the corner who's got more money than you do and a lower cost of capital than do you. And so the only way the venture business kind of succeeds, and I think, quite frankly, has a chance to kind of, you know, succeed over the next 10, 20, 30 years is, as you point out, to really be a partner to these entrepreneurs. And so we spend a lot of time, of course, we sit on the boards, but, you know, also, you know, like we've done here at Andreessen Horowitz, we've got, you know, 100 plus people who all they do all day long is think about how can we help our companies accelerate their growth, whether that's through sales and marketing or it's through talent acquisition or through PR and marketing. Uh, All those are things that I think, you know, good venture capitalists over time need to increasingly do to differentiate their money from, you know, other sources of capital. So then how is important for people sort of on your team to then have come from that world where, you know, they come from business, they started, they, they were either started their own company or they were part of a startup. That would seem to be an essential part, something you'd want to, you'd want to see on a resume when hiring. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there's no substitute for understanding the company building process. And I think it's really hard to understand it as either an observer or an academic, as opposed to actually being in a startup company. And you know, of course, look, everybody doesn't have a startup idea, so everybody doesn't need to be a founder themselves. But I think there's just, I think there's two things that come out of that startup experience. One is just, you know, the pure learnings of what's it like to go raise money? What's it like to obviously kind of go through hyper growth? And in some cases, unfortunately, hyper contraction, depending upon how the markets turn out. But I think you also just get a tremendous amount of respect and empathy for the entrepreneurial process itself. Uh, and you recognize, I think, you know, very importantly, that uh, as much as the venture capitalists certainly can be helpful at times, you know, we shouldn't kid ourselves that these companies are built by the entrepreneurs and by the employees who are part of those companies. And I think the danger in this business is you overestimate what you think you know about the business, even though you're not actually in it day to day. And if you've had the pleasure of, of growing up in a startup environment, you will never make that mistake. And you will clearly recognize the boundaries between your job as a venture capitalist and your role as an entrepreneur. That, that to me would seem to be about the most difficult thing is figuring out what those boundaries are. Um, if you're the entrepreneur, kind of figuring out when you need to say, no, I got it. I think I know what I'm doing here. I appreciate your advice on this particular point, but I think, but my instincts say I should, I should do this. And at what point you say, well, I, you know, <laughs> we think you're wrong and you're making a horrible mistake. I mean, that's sort of, ba- that, you know, I find interesting what that, that tension must be like on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it's hard, right? Because you think about it, you've got this weird relationship, which is, okay, your venture capitalist has given you money, right? And uh, that's obviously, you know, a nice, nice thing. And and you want to kind of respect and uh, hopefully reward them for that investment they made. And they're there hopefully to be helpful to you. At the same time, though, if they're on your board, 
at some point, they have the ability to do the ultimate, which is to hire or fire you, right? And say, hey, look, we just fundamentally disagree with what you're doing as a business. And so you want to kind of be open and responsive to feedback from your venture capitalist, but you also always have a little bit of this guarded relationship, quite frankly, because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you do have this kind of somewhat kind of, you know, manager uh, and managed relationship in the sense that the board ultimately does kind of have that uh, that ultimate decision around the, the CEO. But I think I think the VCs and the entrepreneurs who work best together, they recognize and understand that and recognize at the end of the day, look, we're on the same team, which is, you know, both of us would like to see the creation of a really interesting, you know, kind of standalone, profitable, hopefully public someday company. And uh, that we can be, you know, kind of mutually beneficial resources for one another. And there's no reason to have tension between the two. And, you know, part of, uh, you know, part of what I hope people get out of the book is that understanding that, you know, kind of these are mutually symbiotic, symbiotic relationships. And there's no reason why they need to be clouded in either, you know, kind of mistrust or concern or misunderstanding. And, uh, you know, hopefully demystifying some of these areas of venture capital, you know, helps accomplish that. And I think to the extent people sort of understand how this process works, the part they probably understand or are most knowledgeable about is sort of that initial, I guess, pitch uh, from the entrepreneur to the venture capitalist. Maybe they've seen Shark Tank and they know a little bit of what that's like. What are you looking for when you meet these companies? Is it again, is it the product? Is it, you know, what kind what kind of, you know, what kind of founders are these people yeah. going to be? Do they do they have the combination of being able to listen, but also being sort of stubborn enough to, to know when to say no? What what are the what are the elements that you're looking to come out of that kind of meeting? Yeah. So we kind of think of it in a couple of ways. I would say the starting point in many cases is, you know, tell us about kind of the size of the market opportunity you're going after. And the reason this is so important in the venture world is uh, you know, we make you know we make lots of investments, and the reality is, you know, most of our investments either yield nothing, we lose all of our money, or you make a little bit of your money. And if you're kind of a math major, you quickly realize that if 70, 80 percent of your investments don't really uh, realize a lot of return, you've got to have you know 10 or 20 percent that can kind of really knock the cover off the ball. Um, and so, when we go into an investment decision. We want to at least believe that the market size is big enough that if this company is successful, the market can sustain you know, a really big company like a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter or obviously some of the other public companies we see out there. So that's kind of, I would say, the threshold question. And then really, you know, kind of 90% of the analysis really becomes around the team because the assumption here is if it's a big market, let's assume there's going to be competition. And so the question uh, changes from do I want to invest in this market to do I want to invest in this team? And what is it that makes this U team, U, this team uniquely qualified? Do they know something nobody else knows? Was this their life's mission? Do they have kind of storytelling and leadership capabilities that's going to kind of cause people to quit their jobs and come work for somebody well in advance of when there's a rational reason for them to do so? It's all of those kind of, you know, uh, you know more team-oriented and, quite frankly – you know, qualitative judgments that we're trying to make when we're making an investment decision. I know one, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sure this is a very, uh, very well-known story in Silicon Valley, but it's uh, one that's always kind of uh, caught, you know, caught my imagination is with the uh, Airbnb guys. Yeah. Uh, when they when they got that investment, it was it was really not the case um, uh, that the VC guys had great confidence in the idea of Airbnb. In fact, there was, there was deep skepticism, whether any, whether you could have a business that eventually looked that really looked like, you know, a flop house that you'd have people coming over to your house and they would stay there, but they just, but they believed in the team and, and figured, gee, you know, maybe I don't understand this idea. These guys understand that idea and they'll figure out how to make, make this work somehow. 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's funny, right? Uh, you know, when the Airbnb guys started, uh, literally it was people sleeping on other people's couches. And you can imagine, you know, kind of you had to kind of really stretch your brain to think how big of a market could that actually be. Uh, but, you know, I think one of the things that they did, you know, incredibly well was to tell this broader, compelling vision of, OK, don't just think about people sleeping on couches, but imagine if we basically expand the market size of people who will travel because we create a whole new set of accommodations that didn't exist before. And it's it's that kind of expansive thinking around market size uh, that I think, you know, good entrepreneurs both, you know, they believe at heart and they also have, you know, the ability to tell that story in a way that, uh, you know, causes people to overcome any initial skepticism they might have and just kind of, quite frankly, want to write a check and, and march in lockstep with them. And, and I think another question people might have is when – when does a company go public? How do you know like that's the right time for that to happen? Because you see a lot of companies which have gotten very big, staying yeah. private. When does a company go public? Yeah, so as you know, right, well, this is a big issue we've seen over the last you know twenty years, which is it used to be that companies went public, you know, kind of six, six, six and a half years from when they were founded. You know, today that's more like ten or twelve years. So we've had this significant elongation in the time that companies are staying private. I think the right way that we we counsel companies to go public is. Uh, number one, you've got to be of some minimum scale, uh, which is unfortunate, but I think that's just a reality of our capital markets today. And what that probably means is you really have to probably be able to sustain at least a couple billion dollar market capitalization uh, because it's a really lonely place to be if you're a small cap company today. You know, you're probably not going to have any research coverage. You're not going to have any sales and trading uh, you know, activity, and you're kind of stuck. And so to get to at least a place where there's enough minimum liquidity and trading happening in the stock – you're probably talking, you know, a couple billion dollars market cap, which depending upon the industry means, you know, it's probably a couple hundred to five hundred million dollar revenue business still with very significant growth prospects. Right. So probably still that can grow at 30, 35, 40 percent a year. So that's how to think about it from a financial perspective. And then I think the other way that we try to help companies think about it is, look, you've got a whole new um, set of investors and a whole new set of uh, benchmarks by which you're going to be measured, right? So you don't have the luxury that you used to have of kind of, you know, you have these long quarterly periods or even annual periods where, you know, private investors aren't necessarily looking for daily liquidity. And so the real other question then is, are you prepared for what having effectively a daily report card in the form of a stock price requires? Do you have the visibility to the business? Do you have the confidence that you can actually manage that? And you know, I, I think when people put those two things together, they can be quite successful. And, you know, we love to see our companies go public ultimately. What don't you want to hear in uh, from uh, one of your entrepreneurs and, and during that those that first meeting or two meetings? Like, what's the thing that really raises a red flag with you? Yeah, there's there's always two things I think that raise a red flag. One is sometimes people come in and they say, hey, what you know what? I've got this great idea. It's going to be awesome. Let me tell you how big the market is. And oh, by the way, if we screw it up, don't worry, because there's five other companies out there that will acquire the business. And Ugh. I think they say that sometimes because they think we want to hear that because they think we want to de-risk the opportunity. But, you know, whether whether it was a good idea or not, we've self-selected into this business that we are risk-seeking people. And the last thing we want to do is, you know, kind of think about, OK, what's the you know likelihood of someone coming in and scooping this thing up in an acquisition? Uh, and we also want to make sure that kind of the entrepreneur is aligned also, which is we want to see them, you know, kind of tell us how they're going to conquer the world and go try and build a huge standalone business. And so this idea that you're kind of coming into it with already thinking about de-risking the downside, I think it's just, it's a funny thing that I see a lot from people, which I think is just reflects, you know, that they don't, they don't have a great understanding of kind of, you know, what our incentive structure is in our business. Um, and then the second thing I'll tell you that, you know, 
uh, you know, concerns us a lot. The other red flag is, you know, if you come in and pitch and within 30 minutes of us seeing the pitch, we can kind of convince you why either your ideas <laughs> wrong, wrong, you know, um, you know, that's probably not a good sign. Uh, you know, we use this term and I think I reference it in the book that, you know, we like people and, and we hold ourselves accountable to this too. We like people with ideas that are, uh, you know, kind of strongly, you know, strongly imagined, but kind of weakly held. Um, and you know, what that says to us is, Hey, look like, yeah, we want you to know way more about this business than we do. Uh, and we certainly don't want you to kind of be so malleable that in a 30 minute conversation, we can, you know, change your mind. But at the same time, we also recognize that, look, you're going to learn a lot about this product once you get into market. And so your ability to incorporate feedback, you know, reasonably over time with more data points is a really important part of what I think makes, a, you know, entrepreneurs successful. And, and so so typically, how different is that product that, or that service that actually uh, goes to market versus what is described to you in those initial meetings? Yeah, uh, I like to say uh, they bear uh, little resemblance to each other in most cases. Now, you know, obviously – you know, if you've got a consumer product, uh, you know, kind of probably it's going to look it's going to look, you know, somewhat like you did, uh, like you thought it would be. But there's no substitute for getting out in market. Um, you know, there's a very uh, euphemistic word that I know you've heard, uh, Jim, us talk about this business called pivot, which mm-hmm. is a very polite way of saying you kind of, you know, you, you thought you had something that worked and it, and it didn't. And so now you got to start over. And so we recognize that pivots are part of this business and we don't expect our entrepreneurs to be clairvoyant about the product or the market. Um, but so, so much of what we're trying to evaluate is really what we call the idea maze, which is how did you come to this idea for this product? What information did you incorporate? And therefore, do we believe that when you get new data from the market that might help you better inform that decision, that you're likely to kind of, you know, uh, make sure that the product in your, your response to the market is, you know, responsive to those needs. As we sort of get down toward the end here, is it your sense, and there's and something I've written a lot about, and it's always sort of an ongoing debate among economists about sort of how innovative the the economy is. D- does the economy seem pretty innovative from your perspective still? Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I, you know, I, I spent some time in D.C., as I think you and I have talked about. And, yeah, I, I encourage regulators and politicians to come spend time out here uh, because it's very hard to be out here and not be incredibly optimistic about the pace of technological change and the opportunity for productivity improvement and, you know, economic growth and job growth and all the things that go along with that. So yeah, look, we've been doing this for 10 years. Um, I can probably count on one hand, the number of times we've walked out of a pitch meeting where we say, Hey, that's kind of a silly idea, or that's kind of been done a thousand times before, you know, 99 times out of a hundred and more than that, we walk out of these meetings and we scratch our head and we just can't imagine kind of the level of depth and imagination that entrepreneurs have. And so, you know, I, I'm hugely optimistic about where we are. You know, I'm also recognize that obviously we need to think about some of these broader issues like income inequality and how do we make sure that we have geographic distribution of the benefits of technology outside of places like California, New York, and Boston. But uh, I think we're I think we're in an incredibly good spot, uh, you know, in terms of kind of where you know technological innovation is today in the country. And and when you do talk to people in Washington, do you give them suggestions about what to do, what not to do? I know there seem to be a lot of policymakers concerned that all these big companies like Google and Facebook are actually quashing innovation. The yeah. classic thing I always hear is, hey, if you go to Silicon Valley with a great idea for a new search engine, no one's going to see you because, yeah. you know, Google's already dominated. And the same goes for, uh, you know, a, a fantastic new social media company or a fantastic new online retailing concept that because you have these huge companies, that there's these huge swaths of kinds of services or products that won't get funded. Yeah. Is there any truth to that at all? Or 
Yeah, no, look, and I've, I've been spending some time in D.C. around this topic, exactly. And um, look, part of what I part of what I try to kind of, you know, uh, talk to the regulators about is, is just remember how well we've done from a policy perspective in enabling entrepreneurship in this country. One of the wisest decisions I think the U.S. government ever made, uh, you know, kind of in the early 1990s was to enable the Internet to, you know, be be released into the wild and, quite frankly, to, to not regulate it. And, you know, notwithstanding some of the challenges, of course, we have today, you know, a lot of the last 20 plus years of economic growth and development that we've seen has been a function of that. Um, so, yes, look, there are uh, no question that we need to think about, you know, market power and market concentration in an important way. And uh, while, you know, you, you know, your your comment is probably right, which is, you know, maybe maybe nobody's going to fund a direct competitor to Google in the in the AdWords business today. Uh, there is tremendous amount of innovation happening in all areas. You know, VC VC invested over a hundred billion dollars last year, which is a twenty year high. You know, we raised more than fifty billion dollars of capital from limited partners, which is also about a twenty year high. Uh, and so, this idea that you know entrepreneurship and venture capital are not flourishing. Uh, even notwithstanding the fact that you might have some companies who become tremendously successful, uh, that to me is just a, it, it, there's just no truth to that argument. And part of what we need to help the policymakers understand is, you know, let's go figure out if there's bad conduct. Clearly, the antitrust rules and 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 you know the laws and regulations should cover that. But let's make sure that we don't uh, do things that actually kind of, quite frankly, uh, you know, challenge the the predominance that we've had as a country in terms of technological innovation and entrepreneurship. And, uh, you know, this world is, as you know, it's increasingly flat and uh, U.S. venture dollars used to be kind of 90 percent of global uh, dollars today. That's about 50 percent. So if we're not careful, uh, you know, I think, you know, government policies, regulations could, you know, put us in a situation where, you know, we're no longer kind of uh, the, the best place for many of these companies to start. My guest today has been Scott Cooper, author of the new book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, Venture Capital and How to Get It. Scott, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jim. Appreciate it.